Hey, Derek Olson here to reconstruct the prehistoric past with you. So in this episode, I'm going to feature part two of a segment from my last visit on the Confessionals podcast where I was talking with host Tony Merkel about the many evidences of lost ancient technology that can be seen in Egypt. You are not going to want to miss this. But before we jump into the interview, I want to let you know that registration is live for our second annual Megalithic Marvels of Egypt tour coming this May in 2023. It's going to be the trip of a lifetime. I want to invite you to join me and renowned Egyptologist and tour guide Muhammad Ibrahim for the adventure of a lifetime. This is going to be a 12-day expedition, and for a limited time, you can still get $300 off registration. This code is going to go away soon. And the code is EGYPT2023. That's one, uh, all, all together, all caps, EGYPT2023. And I really hope you consider joining us. You can go to megalithicmarvels.com forward slash tours. Or you can click the link in the show notes below. Okay, let's get to part two of my interview with Tony on the Confessionals podcast now. You and I were talking about this video I just posted on, on Instagram of this levitation technology. And I wanted to talk about that because to me, this was really cool. And you can go to my Instagram, Megalithic Marvels, to see this reel. And um, this is at Esna Temple, which is located near Luxor. So again, this is like 10 hours, 9 or 10 hours south of Giza. So a long ways away. And this temple is dedicated to the Egyptian ram-headed netter or god known as uh, Kanum. And this temple is larger than life. I mean, these pillars inside are so massive, it it's really takes your breath away. Um, but again, going there with your megalithic goggles on and having a uh, guide like Muhammad Ibrahim is key because he went and took us to this depiction on one of these walls. And what you see is um, you see this two giant figurines. One is this ram-headed god, Kanum, on one side, and on the other side is this Egyptian and ancient Egyptian king. And they're both standing on the sides of what looks like this megalithic temple, right? Um, but the temple is miniature compared to them. But as Muhammad points out, the temple the, in that picture represents the very temple we're standing in, which is massive, right? Massive temple, larger than life. And But when you look close at the depiction, you see that the temple is uh, not resting on the ground where their feet are. It's, you know, several inches off the ground. And it's also um, surrounded by what looks like an energy field. And when you look close, you see both of their hands are holding tools that are pointed at this structure. And then the king is shooting this string of beads over his head down into the gate. And um, uh, it's known as, again, the levitating temple. And so Muhammad, uh, he, he theorizes that the beads that the king is holding represent an energy field and that this is depicting the knowledge of this lost technology and giving us a clue possibly how they built it. So that was uh, really incredible to take in. And I'm so glad I captured that on the video because it's really been, uh, there's really been a buzz about that. Like people are excited to learn about how did they possibly um, build this stuff and move this stuff. And again, there seems to be a huge connection to sound waves. 
to resonant frequencies. And I can talk more about that if you want. Yeah, please. I, I would like, I would like definitely to hear that. Uh, before you get, get into that though, I, I want to ask you, and this is more of a personal um, thought, I guess, but why, why do you think that you're talking about a levitating building or levitating structure here? Uh, and this is depicted, and I don't know how, how old this is as far as like how long we've, we've had this, we've been able to see it and stuff, but it, it seems like a lot of this stuff has been able to have been studied for 50, 100 years. And it's only until recently that we're, we're starting to come to this point where we're, we're talking about this other, this, this other thought process with this stuff. It, do you think it's because humanity has advanced far enough with technology on our own that we can start conceiving the idea of this kind of technology, even though maybe it contradicts the fact that in the past they had it when we're supposed to be just dragging our knuckles on the ground? Great question. It feels to me like overall, like in the world right now, there's a lot of people talking about a fourth turning. It's like there is this mass awakening on all kinds of levels, politically, holistically, like people are finally waking up to, you know, healthier eating and organic foods and um, the damage that, you know, a lot of these drugs can do to you. And um, so it's like there's an awakening, I think, to even ancient history. Again, this Netflix documentary, this is, it's the reason it's so huge, this ancient apocalypse documentary that you referenced that Graham Hancock's released with Netflix. I mean, this is huge because, uh, you know, Graham Hancock wrote some books like Fingerprints of the Gods. And Joe Rogan said in that video we referenced that he read that years ago, and he basically became this disciple of Graham Hancock. And so the last several years, he's had Graham Hancock on his podcast, which is, I think, the biggest in the world, right? And so that's really helped uh, what, what was normally known as alternative history or pseudoscience. I get accused of that a lot, pseudoscience, to now be thought of, well, wait, maybe there's something to this if Joe Rogan's talking about it, right? And now Netflix is not just releasing it on their platform, but it is a like a flagship series by Netflix. And so this is getting people's attention. And to me, again, that's that's proof that there is an awakening to these ideas where people are they're searching for truth, I guess. And and I think that's part of the reason I've seen growth with what I do. It's like people are just hungry for this stuff. They're looking for an outlet that's talking about it. I think that's why your podcast is so huge and the stuff you're getting into. Um, people, well, I think people people know there's so much more even, you know, it, it seems like atheism is fading and people realize, man, there's a spiritual world that is very real and the ancients talked about it and they want to experience it. They want to understand. And so I think in a nutshell, that's why we're, we're starting to hear about this in the mainstream. Mm. A great awakening amongst humanity is, uh, uh, it, it's, it's amazing because it, like we're I, like what you just, what you just described, we're living in it right now. And it, it's, it's, it's crazy to think about on certain levels because you have on one hand, this great awakening. And then you have this other hand, this are ar this seemingly archaic way of living life and doing things uh, that seems to be on its way out, but also clawing and grasping for every last inch of life in our, in our consciousness and understanding. 
And uh, that, 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 yes, that does go politically as well. <laughs> if anybody's thinking, is he hinting? Yes, I'm hinting. <laughs> but it, it's, it's, um, it, it's really, it, it's really an interesting time to live in right now. Uh, and I, I, I'm just, I'm fascinated. Uh, and, and this is, this is a curveball for me because I never, I was never the person that was looking at the past of as anything. I never really cared that much, you know, like, I learned about the pyramids. Oh yeah, they're big buildings out in Egypt somewhere. Like I didn't, I didn't care. And, and now it seems like everything that I'm looking into points to our past and trying to understand our past. And uh, it, it, it's just, it's been fascinating. It's been a fascinating ride for me. Um, so I think you, I think you said you you wanted to get into. Uh, I, now I'm drawing up like was it vibrational frequencies or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can talk about that. And it's interesting the. There was a company called the Nippon Corporation from Japan back in, I think, 1978. They basically wanted to prove to the world that they could figure out how the Great Pyramid was built. And so they basically uh, tried to build a, uh, the Great Pyramid stands almost 500 feet. Well, they tried to build a 60 foot tall miniature version of this using limestone blocks. And all they were doing was just stacking blocks in a triangle, right? Like it wasn't like the real mechanical Great Pyramid that has passageways and chambers. Um, and they were going to do it using ramps, pulleys, what they, what the mainstream tells us how they built the Great Pyramid, right? Giant workforce, slave labor. And um, literally within a short amount of time into the project, they just gave up. They couldn't do it. They couldn't even build a 60-foot tall uh, pyramid that just stacked blocks on top of each other with ramps, pulleys, and a workforce. They had to bring in helicopters, cranes, earth movers to do it. And um, people can search that to really get the details, but it was uh, one of the great fails of modern times of, of, of humans today trying to prove how they built it. And the fact that they couldn't even build the 60-foot one was pretty incredible. So the Great Pyramid uh, alone, again, there's so much mystery regarding this. It stands approximately 500 feet tall, composed of 2.5 million multi-ton blocks. And again, mainstream tells us that it was just constructed by this huge workforce, cutting, shaping, moving large limestone blocks into place using sleds or wet sand. Uh, I mean, come on. And um, they tell us that, again, uh, the fourth dynasty pharaoh Khufu, built it about over a 20, 10 to 20 year period, uh, which concluded about 2,500 BC. Well, if you kind of look at some of these estimates about that, it states that the Great Pyramid, um, if it was constructed over one Pharaoh's reign like this, each huge stone would have to be cord shaped and moved and set into place every two minutes. So kind of shows you uh, the incredible impossibility of that. And then again, back to Graham Hancock, he talks about how we can calculate from its mass that this pyramid weighs about 6 million tons. It's got a footprint of 13 acres, and it's more than 750 feet long each side. And, but it's not just big, it's precise, and it's locked in the cardinal dimensions of the planet. It's targeted on true north within 3 sixtieths of a degree. So again, it's aligned. And it seems to be aligned with the constellation Orion as well. So there's so much going on. It's a work of stunning artistic achievement, 
really the work of masters of architecture. Uh, for example, there's blocks of stone inside the king's chamber, which is like the Holy of Holies inside the Great Pyramid. These things are 70 tons each. They were raised more than 300 feet above ground. And so the achievement of making it into a high precision structure like this is an unfathomable because if you make any tiny mistake at the base, by the time you get to the top, it's a mess, right? And so um, the Journal of Applied Physics, which was a, it's a pretty big uh, scientific magazine, they released a study a few years ago based off the research of scientists from Germany and Russia, and they concluded that the Great Pyramid can concentrate electromagnetic energy in its internal chambers and under its base. Uh, so this is important because it means we've got scientific data that supports the theory that the Great Pyramid was a technology structure of some kind. And again, there's a huge media cover-up when this report was released. You weren't hearing about it uh, in the mainstream. Um, many people might have heard about Chris Dunn. He wrote a book called The Giza Power Plant. And uh, sometimes I don't like that phrase, the Giza Power Plant, because your mind can kind of go back to like just a crummy old like electrical plant in your neighborhood. Um, so I don't like that phrase of, because of the visual you get, but I like his book and he has a lot of great theories. And he, he theorizes the Great Pyramid, uh, he believes, was built to provide a highly technical society with energy. And it was like this holistic energy device harmonically coupled with the Earth, where the Earth is the power source and the pyramid is basically tapping into it. And so when it resonates with the Earth, energy is drawn through it. And so much of it's related to the geology of the stones they used plus water. And so it's crazy when you start researching this. Thousands of years ago, the Nile appears to have run right up next to the Great Pyramids. And then over 100 feet down under Giza is a massive aquifer. aquifer. And um, in some of the pyramids, you can see erosion. And so it appears that water was the source. And when you study acoustics, acoustic harmony was there to probably work on the bonds of water. Uh, Stephen Miller theorizes that it was, it was breaking hydrogen down into oxygen. And the water was used to produce the electromagnetic field with the resonance to keep the pyramid humming like a machine. And so each pyramid was, might have been tuned to a, a, a frequency of sound. Um, and every chamber was probably specifically designed and advanced with acoustics uh, to generate specific sound frequencies. And when you're in the Great Pyramid, there is a spot called the antechamber. You go into it right before you enter the so-called king's chamber, which there was no king ever discovered in there. But this antechamber, it looks like you're in a giant machine. It looks space age. I'll send you a photo. I meant to actually send you some photos. I'm kicking myself. So I wanted you to visualize what I was talking about. But this antechamber was the most amazing thing I saw inside the Great Pyramid. It is, you know, extremely hard granite. Um, but these, these blocks are layered like you're looking at hydraulics inside an engine or something. It, it's mind-blowing. And again, the crazy thing is when you look at the uh, 
archaeological record, the dynastic Egyptians, and I might have mentioned this on your last show, they they had copper chisels and hammers. And they might have even had some iron, which is a little harder. But copper and iron are like three to four, maybe five on the Mohs scale of hardness. That is the uh, standard when judging how hard a stone is. Like diamond is going to be a 10, right? Copper's down there at three or four, iron maybe five. We're talking about Aswan Rose Granite. It's got quartz all inside of it. It's extremely hard. So it's like an eight, maybe nine on the most scale of hardness, I believe. So the point is it's way harder than the tools the dynastic Egyptians had. So one, even if they could use blunt force, you know, for a decade to pound away and try to uh, shape granite, they couldn't have done it with precision to where it's mortarless and it looks laser-like cut, right? So again, you see that kind of stuff inside the Great Pyramid and you just know inside the whole thing reverberates and echoes on frequencies. And um, it just really gets you thinking about how crazy it is that all of this granite you see inside the Great Pyramid, people just assume, well, they just grabbed those, these blocks right there on site and started to build this. No, guess what? These blocks come 11 hours away. The only place Aswan Rose Granite's found is in Aswan, 11 hours away from Giza, by car, I believe. So you not only have the problem of shaping it, creating this, how in the world did they move 70-ton blocks, and we're talking millions of them, 11 hours by car, right? Yeah, it, see, and that's what that's that's what's so fascinating about all this is when you start hearing about all these anomalies, uh, well, seemingly anomalies for us, uh, and it's hard to comprehend. So you're sitting here and you're talking about the structure of the of the pyramids and how you know the, the Nile flowing next to the pyramids and then the aquifer and you're I'm starting to draw this picture of okay, so water plays and the power of water and and then the energy and, and then that's creating the sound and you're they're harvesting the energy that's cre- that's created from the sound and or vice versa and it, it, it I start thinking about all this stuff and then all of a sudden you're like and they pulled these things from all the way over here. And we don't know how they did that either. I'm like, well, that, okay. So, so, cause, cause part of me is like, okay, so, so it, it's this one spot and we just figured this out. But then it's like, well, well, how do you make that mobile then? Because that like they, <laughs> they were, they were moving all this stuff in and, and how did they do that as well? Uh, do, is it possible? Do you think that, um, this is really futuristic thinking, by the way, uh, <laughs> do you think if we ever get to a point where we actually understand what the pyramids were for truly, how they operated, how they worked, do you think that it's a possibility that we could um, renovate these structures into operation today? Because, and I asked that because uh, I think it was in the first episode of a po- of a Graham, Graham Hancock's uh, series, um, what's it called Apocalypse. Ancient uh, Apocalypse. Ancient Apocalypse. So like, in the first episode, I, I believe it was, or maybe the second episode, uh, it was probably the second. They, they were in Mexico, and they were talking about how there was like three layers of pyramids uh, at this one location. It was like they built on top of them, you know? And, and 
it seems like that, I mean, maybe I misunderstood, but it seems like it was over time, like different civilizations built on top of them, understanding there was an importance to them at least. Uh, I, 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 do you think that the, the pyramids in Egypt could be reusable at one point? Um, boy, that's a, that's an intriguing question. Hey, why not? If, if we were truly open sourcing the technology, um, and tapping into the geology of how it was used, that could be a possibility. Here's one thing I know for sure. The dynastic Egyptians were a hundred percent trying to do that. And I'm going to give you some proof of that. And so, um, it's likely, I think that so you look at the Great Pyramids, you know, there's three of them right there in Giza. Think of them as this holistic, um, these holistic energy devices that were powering the megalithic temples where the ancients would come for healing and fertility. So if I sent you a picture of, there's a structure called the Valley Temple, um, or these other temples like the Esna Temple I referenced with the uh, levitation depiction. Um, these are temples, um, and a lot of them have the same megalithic stonework that's inside the Great Pyramid, except where the pyramid's not functional for a, a human to be, or some kind of ancient being to be climbing through, these megalithic temples are. And so it's likely that uh, many theorize the pyramid was powering these temples that were designed for healing and fertility. And when you study the uh, dynastic Egyptian writings and their hieroglyphs, they're talking about these were for healing. And so um, Muhammad Ibrahim, our guide, theorizes that um, these were possibly connected, kind of like a wireless connection, but using a resonant energy through the ground. And according to him and many other like tour guides, there's massive uh, secret tunnels that are closed off to the public running all over Egypt and all over Giza. He calls them megalithic tunnels. And so um, were these possibly like some kind of love train where, where they were moving stuff? It's crazy uh, to think about. And then you've got the obelisks we can talk about. At Karnak are some of the world's largest obelisks. We talked about the unfinished one, but it's it's mind-blowing to see the ones that are still standing, like at Karnak. I think Karnak has the largest standing obelisk in the world. Made of rose granite, again, this thing is massive, and it was likely operating like a huge antenna uh, for cosmic rays that could release energy upon you know this ancient civilization. So again, we think of power poles and electrical cables and they're using this holistic uh, type of technology that's tapping into geology just tapping into nature and it was just far simple and again how they made this stuff was simple but then you look at the hieroglyphs themselves up close um, and you see evidence of ancient technology on our last show that I talked to you about a site called the Ram Museum and uh, the megalithic statues. That doesn't ring a bell, but that doesn't say much for me. <laughs> okay. Well, this to me was one of the greatest surprises on my trip last in La in Egypt this last February. I knew that going there, the you know the pyramids were not created by the dynastic Egyptians; they were megalithic, and I knew there was megalithic temples in Egypt. 
but I assumed that most most the stat the statues you see in Egypt were all dynastic, right? Again, made by the dynastic Egyptians of 3000 BC, King Tut, Khufu, those kind of guys. So you go to this site called the Ramesseum in Luxor, and it's dedicated to Ramses II, uh, who ruled about uh, 1300 BC. And they call this site that they've dedicated to Ramses II, again, a dynastic ruler, because guess what? The name Ramses was found at this temple. But here's the question. What if this is talking about more than one Ramses? What if this was the original Ramses? Follow? And so you walk around the site, and it's massive. And you see, you know, mostly these sandstone pillars, which is much softer than granite, right? You see these sandstone walls. You see these sandstone statues. They're all built in sections, like there's a leg section, a waist, a head and torso section. These are dynastic statues made with sandstone, much softer than granite, but that's the best they could do. Make sense? And it's about 20 feet high, made in sections. Then you go around the corner and you see a megalithic statue. This thing is severely damaged. Uh, when it was first made, it probably weighed um, two tons, but the, the head, torso, and waist that you see now is uh, 1,000 tons. You get up close to this, and guess what you see? Muscle tone. Precision made from one solid piece of granite, and you can still see muscle tone in its arms. And on its shoulder are these, I call them precision, deep embedded 3D symbols. Looks like they were cut with a laser machine. And then at the base of this statue that it broke off of, you see these same symbols. Well, guess what? Muhammad could read the symbols. They're what people would call hieroglyphs. I theorize this is actually the original language of the megalithic builders. This is likely the original Ramses. Ramses II of the 19th dynasty came along and was so blown away by this, he tagged everything as his. But his construction is far inferior, right, with softer sandstone than this precision granite stuff that, again, looks like it was carved in layers. And um, Muhammad actually wrote, he read for us what these symbols said at the base of the statue. And it said, the powerful system of the sun, chosen by the sun, son of the sun, Ramses. And it was incredible when he wrote it. It gave us goosebumps because we realized, um, okay, there's a whole lot more going on here. It appears that, again, this way predates Ramses II of the 19th dynasty. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It, and it kind of confirms this, this idea of um, this, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, degrading of technology over the time. It, it, it's, it's so, like time moves forward, but technology apparently doesn't sometimes. And uh, it, so was this then, so, so, so this, this was then after whatever, I, I think Graham talks about the, the great flood 
So th- this was after that 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 catastrophic apocalyptic event that knocked us back to the Stone Age, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Whatever happened, you know, which appears to be around twelve thousand years ago, uh, Graham really uh, believes in this Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, where this comet broke off and hit the North American ice sheet. And if you study the science of that, it would have literally sent a catastrophic flood all over the earth and it would have ushered in the ice age. And so um, to me, that really has a lot of parallels with the biblical flood too. And so either way, there was, I believe, 100% an ancient cataclysm um, that wiped out this lost knowledge of the golden age or the golden race. And so the dynastic Egyptians, again, 3000 BC, they were a lot closer to that than we are today. So they still had the uh, fragments of this lost knowledge, right? And that's why they would write about it and talk about it in their uh, dynastic times. Um, And that's why they were repurposing these temples in the pyramids because a lot of this energy was still flowing out of them back in the day. And actually, when you go to all these sites I'm talking about, you'll see these mud brick walls. And the dynastic Egyptians had built these mud brick walls to surround all of these temples. And when you start studying, again, the geology of like a lot of this, um, mud bricks um, has like 62 minerals. So it plays as an energy insulator. They were trying to insulate the energy inside to use it and to protect it. Wow. And again, when you look at sandstone, sandstone, it's formed under oceans. It contains sand and salt. It absorbs negative energies. Um, and so it's used in sites to balance high energy. Quartzite, uh, higher quality than sandstone. It's like crystal. It recharges positive energy. Limestone, they use that a lot on the outside of the Great Pyramid. Highly conductive. Um, it it uh, absorbs pollution, plays like an electrical current for granite. That's why there's granite um, underneath it, inside of it, right? Granite from Aswan is basically, they call it radioactive stone, and it can like send and receive waves. And so again, geology is such a huge part of this. And that's why they were building these mud brick walls around to insulate the energy and try to save it because even in their day they were coming there for healing fertility and um, trying to repurpose a lot of it that's incredible <laughs> that's incredible uh, i i really hope that the next three months goes by smoothly and this, <laughs> this information drop imagine like i don't know I mean, i'm sure you had thought about it but like if you just sit back and think like if that is a success and that info drop is successful, who's to like, who knows where we're at in 20 years from now, technology wise. I mean, imagine, so it's 2022. And I always use this, this example back in the early 2000s, just say 20 years ago, how far we've grown in technology. Well, imagine if there's an info drop that kind of put like, like just nukes, like gives us the power of a nuke behind it and just shoots us forward. I mean, like 
I really hope that it happens and it allows us to understand the past better, but also I'm really hopeful that some way, somehow this technology could really solve a lot of our issues that we have on a global scale. Um, I, I, I can't even fathom it. I can't even imagine what that even looks like, but the idea that maybe through this, this technology dump, just this, this, this nonsense between countries can just kind of come to an end and just be, and we can kind of live a little bit more at peace. I, I really kind of hope so because, you know, I, I'm a father of a little kids and, <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm over here trying to raise them and be like, you can be anything you want to be in this world. I'm like, if we're still here, sucker, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> right. uh, you know, yeah. no, I was going to say, um, I, I should talk about the Sphinx before um, I forget because to me, uh, when, when we're talking about dating and cataclysm and, you know, some people hear 12,000 BC and they, it really short circuits their mind, um, especially if they're coming from like a you know, young earth paradigm. Um, Robert Schock, uh, who's a geologist, um, scientist, I believe too, done some incredible work on the Sphinx. And he talks about how according to, again, standard Egyptological thinking, the great Sphinx was just carved from the limestone bedrock on the orders of the old kingdom Pharaoh Khafre around, again, 2500 BC. When you look at the Sphinx, though, um, on its body and on the walls that it's of the Sphinx is enclosure, you see this massive, heavy erosional uh, evidence. Uh, and he concluded it could have only been caused by uh, rainfall or water runoff. Obviously, the, the Sphinx sits on the edge of the Sahara, and it's been arid for 5,000 years. Um, furthermore, uh, various structures securely dated to the Old Kingdom show only erosion that was caused by wind and sand, very distinct from water erosion. And so he came to the conclusion that the oldest portions of the Great Sphinx, what he refers to the core body, must date back to an earlier period. And his latest research now points, guess what, to the end of the last ice age, 10,000 BC, a time when the climate was very different and included more rain. And many people have said that, well, the Great Sphinx can't be that old, um, in, in part because its head is, is a dynastic pharaoh head, right? Um, but if you look close, especially uh, look at a drone shot from above, you'll see that the head is tiny compared to the body. And um, it's clear the, her the current head is not the original head. The original head would have become severely weathered and eroded. Again, the keyword is repurposed. The dynastics came along and recarved it, and it became naturally smaller. And, um, and uh, Shock also pointed out, and I'd, I'd never heard this till a couple months ago. This was mind-blowing. There's hieroglyphs dated around 3000 BC that talked about the Sphinx as a lioness called uh, Mahid or Mahed. And, and this uh, lioness guarded the royal archive. So 3100 BC, when the dynastic Egyptians are referring to it being, they're referring to it being very ancient already if you read the whole context of this. So again, this corroborates that the Sphinx goes back to a much earlier period. And uh, 
Dr. Robert Schock even found um, he what he calls a secret chamber underneath, I believe it's right paw. He was never given access to go down there or even put cameras down there to show us. But um, again, Egyptology, they know a lot of this, but they'll, they won't they won't talk about it, show it, or admit it. Um, but the key I, sh I share that is this, I, I believe, corroborates that a lot of these structures in Egypt are much older than we've been told, A. And B, like in the Sphinx, we've got here, we've got this, this, the statue, this creature that I believe represents, you know, a golden age hybrid of some sort, right? Um, and again, it was likely this lioness. And so that gives even an even stronger case of these megalithic statues I talk about. So the ancients weren't just building these structures. I mean, they were artistic. They were creating. They left behind depictions for us uh, to see. The key is the dynastic Egyptians were emulating them. So those symbols I talked about at the Ramesseum, I believe, were part of the lost original ancient Egyptian language. And the current dynastics incorporated those into their modern day language. That's also why they dressed the way they did and depicted the way they did. Because when you look at these statues at the Ramesseum, and there's also one at Karnak, it's, it's the waist down. Again, you see muscle tone in the thighs, pure granite. These are megalithic. Muhammad took us to the uh, Egyptian Museum. There was a statue there. He said, look at the feet. Again, this is rose granite, some of the hardest material on earth. It had precision carved toes, like all the way between the toes, right? The, and you, when you get up close and you look, you can see the most finite, looks like ultrasonic evidence of, of cutting all along it, like it was machine cut. Mind-blowing stuff. I've said a lot, but I had to get that out. No, I appreciate it. Uh, with, with the Sphinx, now, I'm assuming they, they don't want to uh, even go down this road and acknowledge it because the, the, the I don't know who it is, like the, the Egyptian Historical Society, they want, they want to be perceived historically as superior, you know, and that's the, the, the image that they have right now. Not that they came in and repurposed structures that already existed. Speaking of the ancient Egyptian historical society, I, I wonder if there was a, a historical society back then was like, you can't cover this up. This is part of history. And they're like, we're going to do it anyways. You know, just like today where it's just like, you can't touch certain buildings. It's, it's history. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's really interesting. Now, he did he... Did he, uh, I forget the guy's name that you mentioned about discovering the, the, uh, the chamber underneath, I think he's the right paw. Uh, did anybody ever get into that chamber or is that just quote-unquote unacknowledged history? Um, well, you know what's crazy? There's some photos you can find of the lead um, Egyptologist of today. I'm blanking. It's Zawi Hawes, I think. Um, again, he's considered like the top Egyptologist that runs everything. Um, there's photos of him going inside secret entrances on the Sphinx's back. 
So there appears to be uh, a couple secret entrances. Um, there's also a hole in the top of the Sphinx head. Um, there's a painting from the, uh, I believe it's the 18, early 1800s of uh, an explorer visiting the Sphinx. And they drew, uh, you know, a, a depiction of what they saw. And there was someone coming out of its head. Well, if you look at aerial shots, you'll see this massive hole in the Sphinx's head. Uh, that's like plugged. And again, then there's this, according to Robert Schock, this chamber under its paw, which is like, he says, probably this, this lost library, a, a royal library. And then uh, again, there is an entrance on its back that we've seen that lead Egyptologist going down to in a photo. But again, that won't be released to the mainstream. If you have to search to find that. So many enigmas, so many anomalies, but there's definitely a whole lot more going on uh, than we've been led to believe. Um, have I talked to you about the Serapium? Do we have any time left? Yeah, we got plenty of time left. Go ahead. Uh, so this was one of the most fascinating sites in Egypt. If you Google the Serapium, you'll see these. Basically, this site is a labyrinth. It was discovered in 1850, rediscovered, I should say. And it hides 25 granite black boxes crafted, again, with laser-like precision. Each box weighs approximately 70 tons. It's got a lid of 30 tons. They're all they're cut from the same piece of granite. Each box is found empty, and their purpose really remains a mystery. But it's estimated that these 100-ton boxes would need at least 2,000 men to transport them, right? Again, if you're thinking through the mainstream explanation of this. However, when you go visit the Serapium, you realize the tunnels that these things sit in are like two feet wider than the boxes themselves. How would there have been enough space for a vast army to transport and lower these boxes? It's impossible. Um, plus the stone was quarried about 500 miles away. And so the official statement from Egyptologists is that these boxes were made during the dynastic period as, as burial places for sacred bulls. Um, but again, how could they have precision crafted these with their softer copper tools? And um, also, it would have been pitch black in there. They would have had to have massive torches for light. There's no black soot on the ceilings. On three of them, you do see some what you would call dynastic Egyptian hieroglyphs. But it's funny. You look at the... Um, the biggest box, the most famous one that's got these hieroglyphs etched all over it, I believe it's really graffiti because you look at the hieroglyphs and it's just really crude. It's like it was scratched into this uh, almost mirror smooth like finish. I mean, it shines. And so these boxes, other than, you know, this, these hieroglyphs are almost some of them in pristine uh, shape. It's mostly because they were buried forever under the, the sands of time. But these are incredible to see. You can go see pictures of this on my um, Instagram. It's one of the pinned posts I've got. And it looks out of this world. It, it really does. I, I remember seeing, I, I probably, I think it's a reel, right? Yeah, you made yeah. it a reel because I, 
I remember watching it over and over again. <laughs> it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And what's really what's what's really like the smoking gun in all of this is it, that it seems like people can't get past it, is the fact that we weren't supposed to have to, like we didn't have the tools for this. With like like it, it's like trying to uh, ca- carve a wooden goose out of a a, a marshmallow you know, or using a marshmallow to carve a wooden goose, you know. And it, it's just it doesn't work. Uh, really interesting stuff. Uh, I just remembered that I'm going to actually be meeting you in February, right here in Tennessee. You're coming down, aren't you? Speaking at the yeah, we're, we're both we're, go, we're both we're both uh, guests at uh, BlurryCon with the Blurry Creature Boys. Uh, BlurryCon. Yeah, yeah. So I I'm actually I I didn't think about that until just now. So I mean, you're going to be there, and uh, I, I, there's going to be a bunch of other people like uh, Timothy Alberino and. Um, Dr. Laura Sanger and and things. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and I think that thing sold out right away, didn't it? I mean, there's no more tickets left, right? It sounds like it sold out literally within a couple of days. And that was just to their, like, subscribers. It didn't even hit the public. So I'm super excited to meet you, Tony, uh, and just to meet the Blurry guys for sure. And I think it's going to be amazing. Sounds like we might do some stuff together, so I can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be a big old party. Too bad people listening right now, they're going to miss it. <laughs> unless unless they're members over at blurry creatures i mean then, then maybe they got in on the action but uh, go, they got this inside scoop yeah yeah buddy uh it's gonna be a lot of fun though and uh before we get out of here derek uh let the people know again one more time where they can find all your stuff well i hope you enjoyed this episode make sure to subscribe to this podcast and check out my last episode in part one where Tony and I talk about the rediscovery of ancient lost technology that is currently underway. You're not going to want to miss that one either. And until next time, keep exploring. Megalithic Marvel.